1: Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note: I'm a registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor for Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offers of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own, and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show today, Professor. We're, it's our last show before the election. Uh, we've got some earnings season. The markets are a little volatile this week. Uh, what's your 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 current
2: sense? Yeah, volatile is our euphemism for down. <laughs> Um, Little down. Yeah, <laughs> uh, not surprised. I mean, I think you got. Let's talk about the markets, and we'll talk about politics. I mean, um, and of course, you know, certainly politics are, are important here. But I, I, I think the markets are. First of all, obviously, the collapse of um, of the uh, stimulus talks um, is it, well, a big disappointment. There was still hope. Um, and that combined with the fact of the virus upsurge, meaning we would have needed it even more now um, uh, that 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 being said, we're going to survive it because I think we're going to have a stimulus package in January, no matter who wins. I don't know whether we'll have one in the uh you know the interregnum period uh, between now and then, but January. You know, our country can survive three months without further stimulus. The problem is with the surging viruses, uh, partial lockdowns, people being told to be extremely cautious, that really could put a damper on economic activity um, into the holiday season going forward. Um, And uh, I think that that is uh, weighing onto the market. I mean, Europe is having even a worse upsurge than we are uh, at this point, and um, uh, I mean that's important. Um, I, I mean I think we are going to get a vaccine. I think with the announcements, probably from Pfizer, that it's going to be effective. Emergency use authorizations, I think, will be available before year end. Beginning to be healthcare workers and high risk individuals will be rolled out in January. Um, uh much more in February for everyone else. I know there'll be a lot of people who won't take it but all oh, high risk people will take it. Um, the problem is you need two shots uh and then there's a couple weeks for immunity to kick in after that. So as uh, uh Dr. Scott Gottlieb uh really gave a great summary this morning uh on CNBC. It it's you know by the time we're going to have you know effect, not effective immunity. I mean, it becomes a problem is really no earlier than February, and uh, you know that's three months away. Um, and, and 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 the surge is, he said, going to be waning by then, but it's going to become you know probably going to be coming over us in the meantime. So there's a lot of uncertainty on that. On the political front, <laughs> the clearly. Um, the uh, the race doesn't look really any better for Trump um, uh, in, in terms, I mean, the virus surge does not come at a good time for him, and it, particularly in Wisconsin, where he's at in the upper Midwest, which he, you know, uh, is gunning for here. I mean, uh, the markets are, are about, you know, 65, 42 to 1, uh, Pennsylvania, which he needs to. Desperately is 64%. I think the interesting thing is what's going on in the Senate. Um, the Senate races are four Senate races that are extraordinarily close: uh, North Carolina and Iowa, and the two Senate races in in Georgia. Now, the interesting thing about the two Senate races in Georgia, which are, by the way, in the betting markets, are virtually 50-50 now. Um, uh is is that it's it's one of them and and very possibly two of them because of Georgia rules um will be in a runoff situation and will not be decided until January 5th it is very possible that uh uh next week uh, the senate will be well, no 4940, it might be 4949 and we have to wait two months for Georgia to decide who controls the Senate, um, and that, and that is not, you know, no matter who wins the presidency. So the Senate, which is critical, as we've talked about in terms of blocking the Biden tax plan or other radical initiatives, it may be two more months um, uh, before that's decided. You can imagine the money that's going to be flowing in and the attention that's going to be flowing into uh, uh, Georgia at that particular juncture. So, I do think we're going to get clarity on the presidential, I mean the the betting markets say 74 uh, 64%, two out of three we will know either Tuesday or Wednesday. I mean, I don't think we're um, I mean I think we'll know really on Tuesday, but it won't really um, uh the betting markets say both Fox and CNN have to uh, you know have to agree on um, calling the election. I don't think Fox is going to call the election on Tuesday. I think they'll probably wait till Wednesday, even if it looks like Trump is going to is going to lose. Um, but uh, between those two days, um, you know, I would say, um, you know, it's it's probably going to be, you know, 70 percent that uh, we we will really know the winner. And it is could you know could move on further if it does move on and it is that close. Then, as we've said before, it's likely that the Republicans will do well in the Senate if, because that means they're, they're going to be beating expectations on the presidency, and they, they need to beat those to, to wrap up those close Senate seats. So um, uh, basically that's where politics, the markets, and the economy uh, stand.
1: So, Professor, one of the f- interesting events this week, you were hosting, a, a moderating a discussion this week on growth versus value. Some really esteemed panelists, with, yes. with Cliff Asness from AQR, Joseph LoKonerschak, and uh, Mario Gabelli. Any, any takeaways, things that you heard, learned, that you found most interesting in, in, in that discussion?
2: Well, I, 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 I think that uh, I think it was an excellent debate, and. Uh, I mean, uh, again, uh, all of these are value-oriented managers. Um, uh, they still have confidence in that approach, and, and as they said, they see extremes that are very much like 2000, but not as extreme on the on the tech side. Um, I mean, Cliff Asinus was very strong on saying this is much more than just tech. This is extremes that are within industries, you take out Fang, and you still get the extremes. Um, he said that 2000 was much more a tech phenomenon, but now you're seeing this divergence between tech and value. Uh, you know, uh, throughout all the industries. Um, uh, and uh, and 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 Joseph Lacanajak, you know, stressed that the the differential on the relative valuations versus relative earnings is at that at same extreme, um, and um, that firms cannot keep those relative earnings growing at at the rates needed to to justify those uh, levels. I mean, now, you know, I I would say that anyone listening would would say all right, I'm 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 not going to jump ship right now. Um if I have a value, you know, it's not the time to abandon uh the value uh, uh portfolios. Um um, uh, I don't know if there was. Uh, I mean, Jeremy, you, you yourself are, were participating uh, in certainly uh, in curating questions and monitoring. Uh, was there anything that surprised you in, in discussion?
1: No, I think it, I think some of the closing arguments that, you know, you earn some of your returns to value by going through these difficult times and, and, you know, now is not the time to leave is, is, I think an emphasized point. I mean, some of the data that he, that they talked about, like the, you know the the average multiple that these top 25 stocks are trading at uh Lekonishak talked about I think it was like 1.6 times when the average is 1 times you know in terms of where their multiple over 2 the market I thought was is between growth and value pre-
2: and he said it's one five one six. it was 1.5 in and 1.55 5 or something 1, 1.6 yeah now so i mean we've gotten to those same Peaks that have have gone on, and and I think that uh, you know, and 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 Cliff, as I said, it's you know, it's it's much more than just a tech bubble, which it was mostly in 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 2000. Uh, we also talked about, uh, you know, that interest rates are not a good explanation because interest rates were really high in 2000; they're very low now. Said theoretically, there could be, you know, if you if you had certainty on cash flows, you are discounting, you know. Those at a greater rate, and that duration—it's like you know, growth stocks are higher duration than value stocks. So obviously, a drop in interest rates would generally uh, put them uh, at, a, at a higher position. But it's—it it certainly, it's—it certainly a lot, uh, a lot, a lot more than that. I brought up, of course, the the fact: uh, Are we in a different economic model where economies of scale? are just so pervasive in the industry and uh... in brand name and ability to expand that things can be different um... people acknowledge that's possible no one no one just you know i think came down definitively on, on on uh... one versus the other but again if you you know it's happening in industries as well that don't have the same economies that tech has then you know that this is a sort of a, a pervasive phenomenon uh... out there and um uh it was it was a it was a it was a quite good debate, I thought. Uh it was uh yeah. quite informative i mean it,
1: it, it i think cliff's point that the if you go before the last three years so like there's a seven years of growth out performance being in his words rational driven by the fundamentals and then the last three years being this more quote-unquote irrational more expansion right. of multiples uh and and you see uh, maybe think the market reaction today you know the question is I well, point is how long can these earnings persist and uh you know when you get very high expectations for earnings it becomes tough to keep beating and you see the four big tech stocks reporting earnings overnight and yeah. you see some disappointment.
2: Well, well you know, the, 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 well, let's talk about that. Only Google is up. Uh, all the others are down. I mean, Google. Uh, so the expectations are so high. And I think we did actually talk about that even last week before these tech firms that uh, that, they, that you got to beat a lot to go up. And if you don't beat by a lot, particularly for tech, I mean, you're 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 beaten down. Uh, You know, I mean, you know, Amazon's down some four and a half percent now. Now, Apple's down five percent. But these are stocks that have run up. You know, a hundred percent from the lows. I mean, you know, and and run up last week before. Before today, I mean, in a way, they're just saying you know people are saying you know, don't short these stocks because they could hit the moon, and all of a sudden okay they they did well, but they didn't you know they didn't uh, you know crush everything, so all those shorts uh you know that that were rushed out you know can come back in uh i mean yeah yeah I wouldn't uh, they're not they're, they're they're it's a one day action, I don't think this yeah. is necessarily a crush, however, that being said you know the. This is viruses are going up, but there's going to be news on vaccines slowly but surely. I mean, coming next year, and especially if we have a Biden presidency and the money is being thrown towards uh, more reopening and and unemployment and then reinfrastructure. And again, this is an argument I think for value in 2021.
1: Maybe one final closing question. I, you know, the usually you get these risk-off sell-offs, and you see rates go down. I see the ten-year rising today, a uh, few yeah. basis points. Is what's going on on this risk-off sell-off today?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I you know, uh, the the the, the ten-year, I think, is saying if there's a damn sweep, we're going to have infrastructure, we're going to have spending um and uh when we're going to have a lot of pressure on the fed not to not to raise and and we're going to have stronger growth and 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 more inflation and i think that's that's basically what's happening at the same time we have vix at 39 right now <laughs> wow i mean um which i i in me i think if if we get through this election again without a huge democratic sweep but close on the senate and uh, a transition that's there You've you got to have a pop in this market. Um, it may not last, but just the unwinding of all the hedges that are in this market right now for chaos on uh, you know uh, Wednesday of, of, of next week.
1: It's going to be very interesting. Thanks so much for, for starting the show with some commentary today.
2: Yes, and we'll talk next week on, on results.
1: Yeah, it'll be very interesting. Um, thanks, Professor. You're listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, SiriusXM 132. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. I'm going to welcome my guest for the rest of the show, uh, Bill Kennedy, who's the vice chair of the Global Interdependent Center, uh, a nonprofit group that Wisdom Tree has been a sponsor of and, and involved with. Um, uh, Bill, welcome to Behind the Markets.
3: Hi, Jeremy. It's great to speak with you again.
1: Uh, thanks for coming on. You're also the co-founder, CEO, and CIO of RiskBridge Advisors and outsourced chief investment office. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about your background and ways of thinking about the markets. Uh, I also have, uh, I think, Li Chen Ren from WisdomTree. Li Chen, are you on as well?
0: Yes, I'm
1: here. Great, good to have you as well. Um, so, uh, Bill, maybe sort of tell us, a, tell our listeners, a little bit about the Global Interdependence Center, how you got involved, uh, and and the mission of of the group.
3: Yeah, happy to. So uh, the Global Interdependence Center, what we call the GIC, it's a 501c3 nonprofit based in Philadelphia uh, that was established in 1976. And the group has a very clear mission, and that's to promote the exchange of divergent views and opinions on a whole range of topics. Uh, It could be economics, uh, finance, the markets, geopolitics, policies, but really bringing together left and right and blue and red doesn't matter, but doing it in a very uh, cordial and thoughtful uh, way. And so um, we think of it really as, in our culture of the GIC, all the programs that we host really focus on uh, interdependencies. So we think about the uh, local interdependencies and global interdependencies. And what we try to discern through our programming uh Are interdependencies good or bad? But more importantly, are they shifting? Are they changing? And certainly during the year of COVID-19, the great lockdown, the pandemic, we've seen uh, quite a bit of changing interdependencies across the board. So it's been quite, uh, quite an interesting time for our programs.
1: Yeah, GIC base in Philly. Uh, their headquarters is right out of the Philly Fed building downtown. Um, you know, so they, it, it's been you know, very involved in monetary policy. That tends to be some of the events you guys do. Is is uh, monetary strat- monetary policies around the world? How how has COVID impacted your event scenario? How are you guys trying to bring uh, content back to the to the community?
3: Well, as vice chair of programs, it's been an interesting year to say the least, but. I have to say our, um, our staff at the GIC uh, just do a, a remarkable job, and uh, in normal times, even more so uh, this year. So typically the GIC holds about 15 to 16 in-person events, conferences around the world. Uh, we have some regular events. Uh, each year we hold an annual monetary and trade conference. Uh, by the way, the next one is coming up on uh, November 19th. That will be in uh, a webinar form. Uh, we do an annual Rocky Mountain Economic Summit out near Jackson Hole. That happens each July. We host a number of delegation trips where we'll take GIC members um, to various locations around the world. Our last three uh, have been delegations to Mexico City, uh, a group to Havana, Cuba, and uh, a group that went to both Frankfurt and Madrid. And then we host to the point, uh, and regular central banking series where we highlight and um, bring to the to the stage a number of uh, central bankers, uh, governors, and presidents. This year's been different. We've had to pivot to virtual events uh, because of the pandemic. And so, uh, year to date, we've hosted about two dozen programs, most of them under the Analyzing Pandemic series, and in that a group of webinars we've covered a range of topics infectious disease virology healthcare policies and I should say Jeremy our next program is November the 5th and this is going to be with Dr Bruce Gellin who's the president of the Global Immunization at the Sabin Vaccine Institute mm-hmm. so to what Dr Siegel was just talking about you know the uncertainty around both the vaccine and vaccinations Dr. Gellin's going to be talking about this uh, at length and should be a very interesting program. So we would love to invite you and all your uh, listeners to participate uh, uh, with the GIC for that event. Yep. But we've also talked about geopolitics. You know. And again, we don't have a kill switch on our microphones. The discussion around p- geopolitics, it's, it's thoughtful. And it's really focusing on those global interdependencies. And then we've also invited uh, monetary policy experts. So uh, this year, the GIC webinars have included Charles Evans from the Chicago Fed, Loretta Mester from the Cleveland Fed, James Bullard from St. Louis, and even Patrick Harker uh, from the Philadelphia Fed. So all of those have been uh, very well received, and uh, that's, that's been a big change for us, going from the live events the virtual
1: events we've had all four of those fed speakers on the program one of them we 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 broadcast from your event in frankfurt last year charlie evans i actually was one of your delegates that went out there and and uh we were at the bundesbank and we were able to get charlie to sit down and talk about their views out there so it it is a i know I, i you know i'm obviously a fan of the uh the group and 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 have followed along to some of these events around the world and and in, in in locally here in Philly, and so it's it's obviously something I, I you know support and think about. You know, I, I think it's a great mission of what you guys are trying to do, and definitely the content has been been great. In terms of the, you know the. Um, the things that you think are core to interdependence, I mean, I think monetary policy, everybody is connected, everybody's stimulating, everybody's bringing that down, rates, how can the the, the, the central bank support? I don't think there's any contention there. Um, maybe one of the issues that you guys talked about um, recently uh, was China, uh, and you had uh, Leland Miller uh, and... and um, and uh, Mike, Michael Drury, right? Michael Drury, and mm-hmm. and we were talking about and and what was happening in China, and that's one of these sort of interdependencies that is more complicated. Uh, maybe anything did did you uh, you're, are you taking from that relationship with China? How how what's your sense on on the relationship with China?
3: Yeah, it, it was an interesting uh, discussion. I, I would say that uh, Michael Drury focused on the econ- uh, the economy, the and Chinese growth, and uh, his. Ec- which is kind of his expertise, and really helped our members and participants understand that uh, economic activity and momentum in China uh, continues, right? Uh, Putting aside all of the geopolitical events and trade and um, everything that we are bombarded with in the media, just looking at the data, looking at the numbers, uh, China growth continues to accelerate. Uh, Superimpose on that, Leland Miller's view and and his understanding of some of the geopolitical events you know this is it you it was a perfect example where we were talking of positive global interdependencies economic growth and what that China's growth means for not just the United States and the world but also talking about negative interdependencies um, the trade friction uh, between Washington and Beijing. Uh, some of the things happening in Taiwan Straits, um, and so I, I think that's the type of programming you know that that we try to present. And I thought it was a very, uh, a very realistic and uh, thoughtful debate and conversation. I, I don't know if you had a different view.
1: No, yeah, Leland has been. I, I've met. Uh, I think I first met Leland at probably one of the Global Interdependence Center events, and we've had him on our program as well over over time. And uh, I think he. You know, I, you know, I think there's been a narrative out there that Trump is the most aggressive candidate against China, and certainly, you know, he ramped up the trade friction, and that was a big risk for the markets and the economy. Um, and, you know, I think... Uh, Leland was was saying that he thinks that that Biden was going to actually come out more aggressive as well, and that it wasn't like so so smooth with with just with just Biden. Um, and you know, now we had another guest at one point on the show say, if you put on a spectrum of. Of one being the the previous Obama administration and 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 ten being the current Trump administration, Biden was going to be like a five in terms of the the frictions. It'll be interesting um, to see how that relationship goes. And I think some of the pandemic and other news cycles haven't seen Biden really be confronted on China recently. So I think some of what Leland was saying hasn't happened yet but we'll see if 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 biden does win how that relationship goes i have li chen here also who's who's from china and who has a lot of views and there's also some stuff happening in china this week with their their fifth plenum li chen maybe talk about what's happening this week and, and any sort of things you'd have on the relationship
0: yes thank you um before we talk about the important thing of course is the communique for the fifth plenum of the communist party um the meeting now chinese politics usually runs in five-year cycle instead of four-year cycle in the u.s so for example like the current president um assumed the general secretary of the party in november 2012 and then assumed the presidency in march 2013 so for chinese politics actually 2022 in two years will be very significant year um, as right now, there's no clarity yet on succession and usually eight years into the typical 10 year term of the last uh, two presidencies, there were already front runners, but this cycle has been different. Um, there were a lot of people who uh, I was a little bit surprised that people are interested to hear, you know, my view on the community for the fifth plenum. That is the annual meeting for the party committee. Uh, the the way it does is that um, usually they release this planon, uh, which is very boring documents in in some way. It's extremely boring to read. Um, really, utter lacking of beauty of Chinese language when you read it. Actually, uh, most of people, if you're interested, you can Google and just use the uh, Google Translate. You can get some idea of what the communicate is. Um, I. When I read it this time, because people were asking me uh, about this, um, I sympathize a lot with my uh, friends who are Chinese macro economists who read this uh, consistently. And uh, one thing was interesting was that um, the the points that is highlighted in China by Chinese economists whose audience are mainly Chinese is a little bit different from the. Uh, Uh, the analysis in English, which, you know, audiences mainly are non-Chinese, I would say. So my own read of that document uh, is that, um, for example, there was actually no target on growth rate. Uh, The language is very vague. It says, you know, 2035, hopefully China per capita will be become a mid-level developed economy. But that is, are subject to interpretation. So, if you believe the typical way is usually that means doubling of a of a income. That means you know in 15 years, uh, the goal is doubling income by in 15 years. That translates to you know about four to five percent growth target instead of the current you know the the six. And we've been talking about China. It is growing, but the growth rate is slowing down. Actually, from this plenum. You you feel that the government is trying to setting up uh, the expectation of slower growth, and this point was not uh, much emphasized uh, if you read the English um, interpretation of the planner. So that's one thing I found uh, really to be interesting, and I think uh, you know organizations like GIC would help you know to bridge some of these um, different viewpoints on, on this document. The second point, I think, is a little bit more emphasized in in the English language space than in the Chinese space is uh, the the point uh, emphasis of innovation. Um, You can see that um, here, uh, the the whole communicate, you know, use the words innovation uh, consistently. And that also, my personal view also jabs with this. I believe in the next 10 or 15 years, uh, you know, it's going to be more competitive world. And uh, U.S., um, you know, will face, uh, even my own kids, who are, you know, quintessential American kids now, uh, I, I explained to them that they can going to have to face a very competitive world going forward. Um, I think that one in China was less emphasized. The emphasis was more about um, we want the the it's, it want to focus on the domestic economy, and so I think that, that that is also interesting that the two interpretations of the same document slightly diverges as well.
1: Well, this is going to be good. We have Bill for the rest of the program. Lee Chen, I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets. We're going to continue talking with Bill Kennedy of the GIC and, and the Risk Report. Uh, but Bill, just wrapping up our conversation on China, the events that you guys are hosting, any commentary on what Li Chen was saying, uh, just to, to, there on, on the, the recent developments in China, or any other views on, on what's happening in, in the global economy from the China interdependencies? I,
2: I think
3: two things. Uh, one is... Um, the, around the narrative, right? She she was talking about the narrative uh, coming out of the plenum. We clearly have a uh, a false narrative right now because it's it's election cycle. It's an election year. Um, you know, uh, politicians are going to say what they're going to say in order to win votes. So we have to discern and, and decipher and interpret what's coming from either uh, either candidate uh, as to what they're true views and true intentions are uh, with regard to China. The same goes with China. I'm curious if their language around um, the views towards the United States and what we've been reading in the press uh, are being influenced by their, uh, their plenum, where they're establishing this five-year plan. So that's, that's one thing, Jeremy. I think the other gets down to uh, the importance of liquidity, the importance of the global financial system and the role of central bankers today and the influence of central bankers. And I'll just tie this back to the GIC. So we have a very, very special organization within the GIC called the College of Central Bankers. This was an a, uh, a endeavor that was founded in 2018, and it's really an initiative to sustain and enhance the GIC relationship with all the central banks that we deal with around the world and their former leaders. So right now, there are 12 fellows uh, to the College of Central Bankers. It includes the like of Dennis Lockhart from the Atlanta Fed, Charles Plosser, uh, Christian Noyer from the ECB, and also former governor of Bank de France. And this is a very, very important body, because as we talk about interdependencies, particularly um, in the realm of monetary policy, the College of Central Bankers within the, the GIC is going to play a very important role in thinking through and talking through um, what the solutions are going to be for the next five to ten years. I should also note uh, the College of Central Bankers has a very uh, esteemed advisory board, including Professor Jeremy Siegel, who we're thrilled uh, to be serving in that capacity, and my colleague, uh, Peter Gold, who's also vice chair of the GIC, is doing an amazing job with the College of Central Bankers. But um, you know, keep a close eye out on some of our programming through the College of Central Bankers. I think it'll tie in uh, to your question about not only interdependencies uh, with China, but interdependencies around the
1: world. Yeah, it's going to be interesting, and 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 uh, you know, you search out the Global Interdependence Center, the GIC group, you can definitely find more information on on their programming. And, and it sounds like you got some great, uh, great upcoming programs. Let Let's turn a little bit to your views on the world from your your hat as a, a OCIO, how you manage portfolios. Maybe tell us a little bit about your background, how you uh, you recently formed your new your new firm. Maybe tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Sure. So.
3: Uh, a little more than 30 years in the industry. I started with the uh, DuPont Pension Fund uh, a very long time ago doing asset allocation. Um, I joined Solomon Brothers in the mid 90s, and that wound up turning into Citigroup after a couple of mergers. I uh, was the global head of research for Citigroup Capital Markets for a time. Um left just before the financial crisis, uh, spent a little time in the insurance industry, and then uh, got into private banking as the chief investment officer at my former firm. Um, the reason for establishing uh, RiskBridge was really twofold. Number one, there's I have institutional DNA, so I was very interested in working with the institutional community, endowments, foundations, insurance companies and family offices um, to try to help them navigate through the, the world as it stands today. Lots of complexity in the capital markets, zero yield. Um, you know, how are you, how are you spo- supposed to meet your long-term investment objectives as an endowment uh, with the environment that we're in? So we formed, uh, this year we formed RiskBridge Advisors, uh, a registered investment advisor with the SEC, We're really doing two things jeremy we're providing guidance and implementation to investment committees could be on investment policy investment governance or asset allocation and then we're providing investment management services and ours is a manager of managers platform we create the asset allocation we hire the third party managers or sub-advisors equity fixed income and alternatives and uh, just trying to help build resilient portfolios um, for these institutions who do tremendous work, and, and I have to say, you know, part of our why is you think about what nonprofit endowments and foundations, uh, colleges, universities, hospitals, the important role that they play to society, and uh, we feel it's it's it, it's a good place for us to use our skills and our talents to help our clients help their clients. So that was the reason for forming the firm.
1: Well, let me come back to the question that you posed um, in, in that in that discussion is, how you know that with I think well, perhaps the greatest portfolio challenges today given the historically low rate environment and I sort of think manifested in the tips yields your inflation adjusted bond yields being negative today what do you suggest an endowment to, to meet who has these certain spending needs what or, or just general um, client do in this low yield world
3: it's a it's a great question um, you know, my the knee-jerk reaction from my seat is always to manage expectations lower. Um, but candidly, you know, certain clients can't do that, right? They they have a mandate. They have uh, they need that five percent or the six percent or seven percent, whatever their number is, um, because it's so critical to the enterprise itself. Not just for the portfolio returns, but what that portfolio does to support these institutions. So. What we are spending most of our analytical firepower uh, doing is helping investment committees understand the amount of risk they're taking and the type of risk that they're taking in their portfolio. Uh, Risk, as defined in many different ways, um, risk is not a byproduct. Risk is something to be uh, embraced and uh, managed and optimized and solved for. And so we're trying to help Uh, think about risk, and uh, we believe that if you get the risk right, then the returns should follow over time. But then comes in the future expected returns uh, from the low-yield environment that we're in today. So where we're focusing our attention from an asset allocation standpoint, Jeremy, uh, first in credit, it's been a, a remarkable year. You think about how wide credit spreads were in the march april period and how much they have tightened but we we think credit spreads are about average right we we actually think one of the one of the big surprises over the next uh... twelve to twenty four months is you could see uh, credit spreads tighten further that doesn't mean we're wildly bullish on credit but we think there's enough risk-adjusted yield in investment grade as well as in uh... The, the upper tier of high yield, where there's good opportunity uh, to, to get some income. The second thing we're recommending is to take a look in, uh, and think about getting some yield out of your equity book. And this is not, uh, this is not the value versus growth story, but we believe there are a, there's a subset of a subset of equities around the world that are actually growing their dividends they have strong business moats, they have good cash flow generation, and year in and year out, they can be depended upon to grow their dividend. Again, it's not a yield play, but we're looking for companies that have that ability to give capital back to the shareholders through the dividend, which we think still matters. And then um, the, the third piece of advice is thinking about risk budgeting and how do you tactically adjust a portfolio's volatility up or down, um, again, tactically, uh, when the 10-year yield is so low or the five-year yield is so low. And, and for us, that just means we're holding a little bit more cash in our model portfolio than we normally would. Just treating cash as part of the portfolio ballast, it used to be we would go to treasuries, but we think holding cash uh, makes sense given the, the low yield... That exists on Treasuries
1: today. Yeah, very interesting. We're talking with Bill Kennedy, um, CEO, who just founded a Risk Bridge Advisors, sort of new CIO advisory firm. Uh, interestingly, talking about his his worldviews, I, the you know the the negative tips yields is I think so symbolic of sort of negative expected returns on bonds. I think that makes sense to do. The, more of the cash and, and thinking, obviously, we, sh- we at, at Wisdom Tree share a similar mindset about growing dividends. Uh, that's obviously one of our focus points as well, and, and I think that's a, that makes a lot of sense in, in today's, today's environment. How do you think about the, you know, in, in terms of, of are there, is there other parts of the credit spectrum? Are you, you know, I know you think a lot about sort of um, private-type markets and, and other things beyond what, what sort of more publicly available. How do you, how do you think about those opportunities in, in credit?
3: Yeah, so um, private equity is is not an immediate go-to because there's so much of in the IRRs over the last 15, 20 years that have been generated because of leverage. Um, so it, you, you have to be very selective on the private equity side. Uh, bank loans, leverage loans, um, we're a little bit cautious on that space as well, particularly in the you look at what's happening in the clo space um you know the 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 sweet spot for clo's and that type of credit structure in my opinion was sort of the 2013 to 16 time frame and now you're just seeing lots of structuring terms uh in those clo's that just aren't appealing from a credit standpoint Um, i think one of the most interesting areas right now you know where's where's the biggest disruption during the pandemic well, I, it, it's probably in commercial real estate, and you know we're starting to see some really interesting uh, funds and opportunities present themselves in uh, commercial real estate and commercial real estate uh, credit, um, where a fund can come in and act as uh, uh, provide capital uh, in many different parts of the capital stack um, for commercial office buildings and uh, certainly in. Uh, the larger cities, but even in some of the uh, uh, second-tier cities uh, around the country, and so there's some very interesting opportunities there, where uh, if the uh, you have the right manager that knows how to identify the opportunities, but also they've got the skill set to actually manage the property, you know, if it gets handed back to them, um, you know, that's a that's a rarity. So, uh, but that's an area in commercial real estate credit we think is uh... is worth taking a look at right now on a risk-adjusted basis
1: that's that's really interesting. I, mean, I that is one of the spaces, for sure. That was hit, um, and people sort of questioning real estate. I mean, I just on a few anecdotes on this, and not really on the investment side. But uh, you know, I, I've got friends in 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 New York who are looking for apartments, and and have just recently signed a new lease, found at forty five percent lower price than where they were looking at it a year ago. They were going to move out of the city um, with the pandemic, but they because the deal was so good with you know that. Thing. They're, they're delaying moving out for a year and uh, they're sort of staying in with those lower reds we actually you know have a, a headquarters in in New York on, on 245 Park Avenue and and have, have talked about going remote first um, so that we're, we're we're basically saying we need less space going forward and it's going to be an interesting uh, interesting, you know, I, I think sort of new world is if, if more companies find that, that they can do more with less space. And I think that's some of the pressure those, those uh, real estate companies are coming under.
3: Yeah, I would agree. And in the, in, in the case of RiskBridge, we, we were formed out of the pandemic. Um, we started remote, right? So my team is all working remotely. Uh, Technology is allowing us to do that. We're going to wind up in office space uh, eventually, but um you know, maybe we'll get it a little bit cheaper over time. So we'll see.
1: Yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting uh, across the equities. It, it sounds like a, a, an emphasis right now on growing dividends. Any other? When you think about the the opportunities around the world, there's um, you know some of that we were talking about on value versus growth, and and I think that's somewhat in different size settings. But how how else do you think about equities in terms of where you would try to avoid today and and other things of of the opportunities?
3: Yeah. So. Our framework is always to think about the economic regime, Uh, and there's uh, two components. What's the economy doing? What's inflation doing? Are they accelerating or decelerating? And for us, it's not so much the level of GDP or the level of inflation, but it's that rate of change that matters most. So uh, we think that the rate of economic momentum, as measured in the fourth quarter of next year, all right, so 12 months from now versus now, is going to be positive. And, and we have a fairly high confidence level uh, around that projection. On the inflation side, it, it's a conundrum. Um, we see inflation expectations rising, but we haven't, yet, uh, we haven't yet seen the real economy inflation picking up. And, and for us, what, the way that we measure that, we listen to a lot of corporate earnings calls. And what we're always listening for is, uh, does the company management have the pricing power? Are they able to raise their prices to their end customers? And we're just not hearing uh, very much pricing power conversation uh, amongst the the company calls that we're listening to. So what does that mean? If, and it's a big if, because we don't have a high degree of confidence on the inflation call, but if inflation uh, actually picks up, I think that value—and this is this is the style box comment, right? Yeah. Value versus growth. Um, I think v- the value style will start to perform better. I don't know if it'll outperform growth, but I don't think it'll perform as bad as it has over uh, you know many many years. Um, the second on. Uh, opportunity if inflation is picking up, if we do start to see more um, economic volatility, if you will. I think that's very good for small cap. And uh, we really like the small cap story versus large caps right here. And if you can blend a small cap strategy that actually is growing dividends, and they do exist, we think that's a really interesting spot, and that's where we're spending a lot of time, our due diligence team, focusing on those types of managers. Jeremy, the other area, and I think this is a, a, a very important um, uh, view, we think that active management, which has been beaten up during an era of QE and low volatility and uh, the advent of beta product uh, into the marketplace, uh, we think we're about to enter into a period where active management of all sorts uh, really starts to uh, have a resurgence. Um, and and it doesn't mean 100% of all active managers are going to beat the benchmark. They can't. But we do think that uh, good, resilient portfolio construction will have a nice blend of both active management and passive uh, beta product uh, to to get that exposure. And and the way to measure that, in our opinion, is just look at the dispersion of opportunity. Um, And this is where I think, you know, in emerging markets, it's, if we're right and the dollar is going to continue to weaken after the election, you know we think emerging markets could outperform, um, but we'd probably play it as a beta opportunity as opposed to an active. But in small cap U.S., um, in dividend growers, there's going to be a wider dispersion between the stocks that are winners and the stocks that are losers, and that's where we think having some act, uh, good, solid active managers and active management makes sense. And that's where we're spending a lot of our, our time on the manager research front.
1: Very, very interesting. Um, you know, I think the, the return to, you know, it's it certainly in the U.S. large-cap segment, sort of those the beta has been a tough instrument to beat. I think, you know, it, you'd you'd find the passive indexes sort of at the top of their peer groups in all sort of large-cap benchmarks uh, right now. And, and the question is, some of it is tied to just those top, the mega-cap cap concentration, and, and did, did, does those revert, you know, is, is, I guess, a big question. But you think across these broader sets that the active, still has an important role.
3: I do, and, and, the, and this gets to our philosophy of investing. We think the way to win over an endowment or family's 5, 10, 20-year horizon is don't lose. And so we think the, uh, the secret sauce on an active manager is finding that manager who has the ability uh, to capture most may not capture all, but most of the upside, but they do really, really good on downside capture, right? So if their index is down 10%, they're down half of that, just because not only are they asset managers, they're really good risk managers. And I think that's an important lens uh, that we use in our manager selection process.
1: Very, very interesting. Um so EM, beta, small caps, active, uh, any other places for you think are, are really good for active managers?
3: Um, I, I think the other area for us is, you know, it's been very vogue to beat up on the equity long, short uh, hedge fund community, and they've deserved it, candidly. But I do think if we're right and we start to see more dispersion in the marketplace and if... From these valuation levels, we just have more volatility uh, and chop going forward. A, a good long-short equity manager who can actually make money on their short book, um, we think, you know, could do very well. And so uh, the hedge fund community has fallen into the same camp as the active community Um everyone's been below average, right? There's a very small subset of the tens of thousands of funds and products that are out there that can actually, uh, and have actually outperformed. Um, we just think it's, we think we're in an environment now after, you know, a, a great bull market, lots of liquidity from the central banks, um, fairly low economic volatility. Uh, we think that economic volatility is going to change and, uh, and, and meaning increase, and with that, you know, long short equity should do well, in our opinion.
1: Very good. We're, we're coming close to the, you know, closer to the end of our conversation here. Any any t- areas of focus that we haven't touched on? Thought you would, you would want to make sure we we cover in terms of your big picture worldviews.
3: Well, we, you know, the, the elections next week, so we probably ought to say something about that. And I was very interested to hear Dr. Siegel's uh, uh, comments. You know. From my vantage point, I think the election is interesting. I think the election is important. But for an asset allocation perspective for endowments and foundations and and insurers and family offices, really long-term investors, the election is not as important as the Fed and the liquidity that we're seeing being pushed into the market uh, by the central banks. So I think in my view, the three to six month most important thing is both the vaccine and the vaccination, meaning the creation of, uh, of the vaccine itself and then how does it get rolled out. And again, I would draw everyone's attention to that GIC webinar on November 5th. Um, we'll be talking about that specifically. Um, but, you know, if you look at what the markets are telling you, I, I have no idea what's going to happen on Tuesday, but look at what the markets are telling you last week. Up until last week, the the dollar was telling us Biden was going to win, but the stock market was telling us Trump was going to win. This week it's reversed. The dollar is telling us Trump may win. stock market telling us Biden may win. And that's just based on historical reference, but the view is a weaker dollar uh, is is a given if, if Biden wins and the stock market uh, rallying and, and doing well um, would signal a, a Trump win. My view, if you look at the you know put away currencies and stocks for a minute, just look at the bond market. Bond market's telling me it doesn't matter. Jerome Powell's going to win. The Fed's going to win. All that all that matters more than fundamentals is the seven tr- you know almost 7.2 trillion dollar Fed balance sheet and the impact that central banks are having in global liquidity will continue to be probably the most important macro. Uh, factor in uh, in the quarters and, and maybe even years to come.
1: Well, Bill, this has just been a, a great conversation. Uh, I appreciate all that you do for the Global Independence Center, uh, and and you can stay tuned to their events. I I participate in a lot of those. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Thanks to our producer Patty Hall, sound engineer Dion Simkins. Have a great week, everybody.